Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. There was art in my life a lot. And then I decided, no, I want to be professional. I want to be good. So I didn't start taking classes or, or workshops. I said, I will paint the minimum of two hours a day, no matter what. Hello, and welcome back to the Learn to Paint podcast, where we talk with artists and teachers about how to get better at painting. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers, and that voice you just heard is our guest this week, watercolorist Chris Krupinski. In the interview, we talk in depth about how Chris creates her luminous still life paintings. We'll talk a ton about color, design, and how Chris paints those amazing pieces of fruit. You might be surprised. I know I was. You can see examples of Chris's work, links to her website, and this week's vocab, all at learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode two. While you're there, subscribe to the newsletter so that you can catch each episode as soon as it's available. Now, let's jump in. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. First question, you've been painting in oils. What did you like about watercolors, and what was the most frustrating thing you had to first overcome? Well, I got into the medium because I had little kids at the time and, and I just didn't want oil fingerprints all over my walls and I didn't want to keep all the chemicals around. It wasn't kid friendly. So I thought, oh, I'll try watercolors. But I was so used to back then all watercolors being real wishy-washy and whatever. And I always loved color that you could get from oils, that rich, deep color. And then I thought, I don't think the watercolor police will come after me if I if I try to use richer color. So the hardest part for me was leaving white because I just wasn't used to it. And, you know, I'd paint a paint and afterwards think, oh, there's not enough white. So it was just, again, practice to finally get to where I knew how to leave the paper alone. What does still life give you to explore as an artist? Composition and design. Being a graphic designer, my whole background is design and and where to put shapes and color and whatever. And still life, all of those elements are movable. I have total control. If I go out and do a landscape, which I've done in the past, I can't move those trees. I can't move those rocks. You know, you pretty much have to go find a place that fits within your parameters as far as composition design. And so still life allows me to create designs and compositions. So that's why every once in a while, I even get attracted to something else, like maybe doing a figurative or doing a landscape or whatever. And within 24 hours, my mind's back to still lifes. How did you go about then getting good? It's probably about 25, 30 years ago. I painted a lot. I drew a lot. There was art in my life a lot. And then I decided, no, I want to be professional. I want to be good. So I didn't start taking classes or or workshops. I said, I will paint the minimum of two hours a day, no matter what. Christmas Day, after the kids were in bed, 
I would paint. I didn't care how tired I was. I had to put my two hours minimum in. And I did that for well over 20 years. And it works. It works because the best teacher you can have is yourself. Because you cannot try to paint like somebody else. Because however they paint and whatever they do is from years and years and years of them doing it and they practice and how paints work for them and how their materials work for them and how their mind works. So if you use yourself as a comparison and as a teacher, you grow and learn more than anything else. It's one thing to say, I'm going to do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint every day for two hours. And then it's another thing to figure out how that fits into life. How did you make that transition into making that fit into your life? Like, where did you put that and what did you move around? Was that hard? No, because it was important to me. You prioritize. I mean, I know there are artists that have busy lives, but a lot that's going on in their lives is a higher priority. Art's always been second to my family in priority. That's why I said, I mean, on Christmas kids went to bed. I mean, I spent my time with them. They went to bed and I would paint for two hours because it was important to me. And so any person has to make those decisions. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but if it's important enough to you, you find time as, as anything else in your life. It's, if it's important enough, you find time. How did you structure that time? Were you working on finished paintings? Were you working on skill development, drawing? I just continually painted paintings. I would work on them, put it away, pull it out the next day, work on it. Do you remember running into anything where you thought like, oh, how do I get past this? No, no, because painting every day is like watching your kids grow. You don't see it. So you don't see your own growth. And so I think that those challenges come up but they're not big challenges. They're small challenges, small enough that you can meet them on a continual basis and overcome them. But now if, you know, you hear some people say, I have artist block, I just don't know what to paint. I guarantee it's because they don't paint a lot. Because the more you paint, the more ideas. As I'm painting paintings, ideas are forming in my head for the next. And that goes with, for challenges too. So I never get anything really big because I'd face it all the time and take baby steps. And it sounds like painting every day creates a momentum that's mm -hmm. hard to capture outside if you don't paint every day. Oh, it is most certainly because you live in it. It's not that it's not something that you visit once in a week. It is part of your regular lifestyle. So I think about my painting. I think I'm, I'm a little bit out of the ordinary because I do. I truly live art. It is a huge part of my everyday life. But I think that if you do that, it pays off. So you would suggest if someone's trying to learn to paint that it is more important to do whatever they can every day versus saving it all for the weekend, for example. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And study other artists and be familiar with techniques and, and get to know. That's why I think a few workshops or, or lessons are good because obviously you've got to start somewhere. You're not going to just sit down all of a sudden, just know how to do it. So you take what you can from different people, but you need to practice it. You need to practice it all the time. Do you think a major league baseball player is just good and just plays baseball once a week or twice a week? Or do you think he does it every single day? I mean, it goes the same thing with anything I think that you want to be good at. For you with realism, how important was it to learn to draw? 
Oh, drawing is so important. Today, some of my favorite artists are graphite people that they draw and, and even colored pencil because they really have to draw. I, I think that drawing is the underlying skill that anybody has to have before they can really go into painting. And, and I know that people get so excited to put color there that they can't wait. But if you understand how to draw, you understand form and you understand importance of line, it's just you understand so much more than if you would just copy or trace or whatever. I think drawing skills are so important. Why do you think that people are so scared of drawing? Oh, I don't think they're scared of drawing. They want to get to the color. They want to get to the painting. It takes a long time if you're going to draw and then get to your painting. It's easier to take that shortcut and get right to your painting. And I, so I don't think people are scared. And I think that technology today allows people to, it allows people to skip that important step. But you would say don't skip that important step. Oh, by all means, no, no. <laughs> Again, I'm going to go back to graphic design and my training college. I mean, we used to have to do contour drawing in college which, oh my gosh, you should have seen my first contour drawing. It was ridiculous. But then if you practice and practice and practice, you can learn. You can learn hand-eye coordination. And it taught me to look at my subject 90% of the time and my paper 10% of the time. So we allow our minds to finish the story for us. So in other words, let's say it's a bowl of cherries. A lot of people will glance at their subject and they see cherries and so then they go back to their paper and they draw cherries, a lot of cherries, and they know what stems look like and they go ahead and they draw what they think they saw without paying attention to those little things that a lot of people might miss and it's because they're not looking. And I think drawing something makes you look at it a lot more and makes you truly see what's there. And some of what I hear you is talking about slowing down. Have you always given yourself permission to, to sort of do the pace that you need to do? Or do you ever feel like you need to rush because of oh, time? No. Oh, no. When I was younger, I, I, painting, I wanted a painting done in a day. And I would. I would get a painting done in a day way, way back when. But then I'd look at it and I wasn't happy. There, it was unfinished. There were a lot of things that weren't done. And I am basically an impatient person. So whenever... I paint now. If I get, if I feel that impatience, time to put it away. I'll get back here tomorrow because it doesn't matter how quickly you finish it. It matters where it goes and, and whether you, you know, capture and do what you want it to do. You know, sometimes I look at artists that finish a painting in an hour and I'm, I'm so jealous, but it works for them. It's what they do. But I don't think it's good and right for everybody. So you, you got to do what you got to do. But I think the patience is important. Could you give us a bird's eye view of your process? And we'll dig into it a little bit afterwards, but sort of a quick overview of how you approach a piece. I paint from photographs because I take so long to finish one. Do you know what that fruit would be like if I did? <laughs> so I paint from photographs, but I will use a photo lamp to get good lighting. And then I take a whole lot of photos. Then when I leaf through my photos, I don't have anything in particular in mind at that point that I want to paint. But I know it's a still life and I know what I want to photograph. And so I go through all my photos until something really grabs me. I don't look for anything. I allow it to find me. 
And then it usually takes, the photo takes a little bit of rearranging or, you know, because I don't always take the perfect photo. And then when I start painting, I used to draw it totally onto the paper and I don't anymore. I find that drawing everything on the paper would, I'd smear it over the paper. I'd have so much graphite on my hands that it, it would be dirty. So now I just lightly pencil in the elements and where they go. And by doing that, it actually is easier to see if the composition is good because I can look at big shapes and little shapes without them necessarily being realistic. And then I start painting at my focal point. And then when I go to my focal point, I will then go back and draw small sections that I'm going to paint to more detail. And then I don't have to worry about rubbing graphite everywhere. And then I kind of radiate out from there. I start at my focal point all the time. And then I paint out from my focal point until the whole thing's done. I know some people paint all over the paper. My mind doesn't allow me to do that. And then it takes forever and then I'm done. <laughs> Clearly there's a lot of thinking and planning that goes into your work. What does that movement of ideas and thoughts look like before you actually start drawing anything? Thinking usually happens when I'm driving, when I'm trying to go to sleep at night. I, I do. I think, I think, I think, I think, I think, I think a lot. And I sometimes, as an example, I might think, I want to do a complementary color painting. And so I start thinking around that, uh, like, what will go with wit, blah, 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 you know. But as I'm doing that, I'm composing. I'm thinking, well, I need a big shape and I need a small shape and I need, I need repetition. I think all of this. So then when I'm ready to do the photographing, I fit that within these parameters and I start photographing for this specific example, I'll start photographing everything that's complementary colors that I have. I go to the grocery store and buy fruit, and then I start photographing. And then when I find the one that I like, I almost always have to move things around or add something. So the planning part is usually accomplished before I do the photographing. And then after the photographing, it's just switching a few things around. But lots of thought. Lots of thought about color, lots of thought about shape, lots of thought about movement. I mean, I think all of that through before I start. And I've read someplace that you don't do thumbnails. Is that still true that you don't really oh, do thumbnails? Oh, no. I don't want to do thumbnails. <laughs> to me, once I've finished them, then the fun's all gone. I want to see it come to life on the paper. And that's the one thing that I always thought, you know, you take a sheet of blank white paper and then with brush and paint you develop into something with dimension. And, and if you do a thumbnail, you do that. It's done. Well, and it sounds like you do so much of the thinking that often people would be problem solving in their thumbnails, but you've problem solved that in the car on the way to the grocery store. And then you've problem solved that in your photo while you're taking it, that that's where that composition and thinking and color strategy happens. Exactly. So you, you teach workshops. Do you ever see a struggle with students of doing enough thinking before they launch into the paper itself? I don't think that many people really think hard enough because before anybody starts a painting, I don't care whether it's realism. I don't care whether it's abstract. I don't care whether it's landscape. I don't care whether it's still life. I don't care what it is. You need to think about why you're using the colors you're using. I'll give you a good example again. As being a graphic designer, when I design something for a client and in the design, I'm using a blue. And when they ask me why I use that blue, 
I can't say because I like it. That's not an answer. They want to know why. There needs to be a reason why behind it. Well, I think in fine art there does too because temperatures in color matter. A limited palette matters. Your choice of color matters because in the end, it's going to have an effect on your painting. Your composition matters. Everything does. And so exactly, a lot of people use thumbnails because they do that on paper, they are thinking on paper, but there are a lot of people that I say to them before, before you start think, why are you doing that? Or I'll ask students, why are you using that color? And there needs to be an answer. You should never, ever, ever just say, oh, because I like that color. Because if you like that color, put it together with the other colors and have a reason for it. Because this way you can follow the path through your painting and it will make it will make sense to you. So for your reference photos, what do you know you'll need from a reference photo? What information do you need to capture in that reference photo? And then what don't you need your reference photo to capture? Oh, good question. I know I need the light source. I think that is the number one thing. And I, like I said before, I use a photo lamp. I used to rely on the evening light because that evening light is so beautifully warm. But then when you have trees that are growing and getting in the way of your light source, you know, so I, I, I said, I got to find something else. Well, I found this photo lamp that I can take photos at midnight and still have the same light as an after, you know, late afternoon light. And it's so important for that light to cast long shadows and, and to give me my dark values, my light values. That's what I want to see from a photo. The least thing that I care about in a photo is a color because color is mine. I don't want to use Kodak's colors. I want to use mine. And so, you know, a friend of mine once said to me, you know, I try to look at trees and I don't see any purple. Well, I don't either, but I can put it there. And that's the same in my still life. So I might not see in the shadows violets and, and blues and whatever, but I can put them there. So the color is the least and the light is the most important. When I think about realism, I think of people trying to be a slave almost to the reality in front of them because the realism is what's important. And I don't hear that at all in what you talk about. I hear you talk about pushing shadows and adding blues where there are no blues. And I think that there's just so much freedom in what you paint and the way you paint it. And I sort of imagine that that's surprising to people when they first think about, and maybe when they don't know anything about art too, but when they think about painting realism. Okay. Yes, exactly. If I'm asked to do an abstract painting, or if anybody would ask me, I would have no clue in the world where to start. I, I just wouldn't. So realism or still life to me is a point of departure. So that when I put these designs together, I'm not painting a painting because, oh, I want to paint pears because, no, those pears represent a shape to me. So it's my portal into abstract painting and design. And, you know, the shadows don't need to be gray because that's what's there. They can be full of life and color and stripes are going to be on a diagonal. They're going to give you a nice form in that painting. So, yes, it's all about it's a point of departure for me, but I don't know how to think if it isn't something that's real because I just can't. The cherry 
a cherry gives me a small round shape, you know, and a pomegranate gives me a big round shape. But do let me tell you, when I get into painting them, I have so much fun making them look like maybe you could pick them off the paper. But I'm going at both. It's not the pomegranate that's important for me to paint. It's the size and shape and where it is on the paper. But yet I have a fun time painting it to make it real. So I've got the best of both. Digging into specifics a little bit, fabrics. What's important to look for when painting fabrics? Do you mean in the selection of them or in actually painting them once I've selected them? Well, let's do both. I'm mainly asking about the second, but it's just because I didn't even know to ask about the first. (laughs) Well, the selection goes with the whole design aspect. So if I'm using a lot of round shapes... I either want stripes or a geometric, something that's going to be square, that's going to give me a contrast to the round. I sure don't want to do cherries and apples in a round bowl on a fabric of circles. Too much, too much. There's no contrast. So, I mean, I think about that. And plus, I have a desperate love of quilts because I admire the quilters. I admire what goes into that. And I admire the history of them. So that's all the selection. But actually, whenever I use them in my composition, those folds and creases all need to be pointing to my focal point. Everything. If I use a stripe, I love the diagonal thrust that it creates. But there's still going to be folds. They act as guides and paths to lead my viewer into the focal point and hopefully to keep them in my painting. But again, this is all part of this thought process before I even start photographing. The background plays, because that's what my fabrics are, they're background. But in all of my career of looking at still life, I'd see people that do these marvelous still lifes and their backgrounds, it's it's like they didn't care about them. Well, mine, I want the whole painting to be important. And and the background in my painting is as important as the foreground. And so it's how do you how do you put it all together and not make it all fight? But again, like I said, it acts as a guide to bring viewers into where they're supposed to go. How do shadows behave in fabrics? What are you sort of thinking through and looking at from a hard edge, soft edge, darker, lighter, bounce light? What is happening with those folds and those shadows? Oh, folds and shadows in fabric are, they're very complex. And we get back to people need to look at what they're painting. They need to really study it because a fold in a fabric goes from a cool dark to a reflected light to the darkest section is right before it gets to white, white. So it does every single time. The darkest part will be right on the cusp of moving into the light. And then so the reflected light areas, I always put a a wash of yellow underneath it to make it a warm dark. And then a cast shadow goes from the darkest under the element out to it, it lighter. It gets lighter. So I always have it go from a dark violet to a turquoisey blue but gets lighter as it goes out. But it has to be consistent throughout. You can't make some of them be that and then forget about others because then your finished piece doesn't read correctly. And the nice thing is, is that if it's placed everywhere, then you have a nice composition of reflected lights. You have nice composition. Everything is repeated in repetition. You have to think that no matter how minor they are, you need the consistency within your paintings. 
What challenges do you see students running into when painting shadows? What advice do you give them? First thing is, can you paint a shadow for me? So I always have to paint an example. But my advice is consistency. And that's the other thing. I A lot of times everybody wants to know what colors do you use? It doesn't matter. I have taken a gazillion years coming up with my own palette, my own colors when I when I paint shadows. I say, if you want to paint your shadows green, as long as you're consistent with every single one of them, it'll be right. How do you change that color based on whether it's light or dark or near or far, that there's these things happening to it in space, but keep it looking like the color I intended to the viewer? Well... I always paint shadows first on fabric, always. So I put in my shadows and that truly helped in a design sense as well, because I can see where the shadows are, you know, and then I come back and I paint the color of the fabric right over the shadow, always. And that's always what I do. And it always works. You never, ever, ever paint your shadow on top of your color in a fabric because... Most fabrics have very sharp edged patterns on them or designs. And if you paint your shadow over that design, you are going to soften that edge of that printed whatever. And that's all I do. There is no magic. Put the shadow down, paint your color over it. And it works because when you read a color in a painting, you are going to read what's in the light area. For instance, if we have a red if you have a red section and it's red where the light hits it, and then when it goes into shadow turns violet and dark or whatever, people are going to read it from the red because they will continue the shape, but they've already read red. Thinking about those folds in your fabric, there's like a, there's a beautiful soft edge, but then there's the challenge of how do you then also keep the paint where you need it to, to read as a, a fold. How do you do the soft edge folds? First of all, I go through... More a Kleenex. I Kleenex should should pay me for how much for how many tissues I go through. And I never use paper towels because they're too stiff. I need that softness of a Kleenex. I don't like that they put this medication in these Kleenex either. Yeah, because that I don't want that on my paper. So I paint several glazes, but with each glaze, I keep on dabbing to keep a soft edge. And I'll go back and work it, and I'll dab until it dries because I want that soft edge. That's what I'll do to get a soft edge. But I do. I use a lot of Kleenex, a lot of glazes. So transparency versus non-transparency. How do you give a sense of light coming through an object versus light hitting an object? Think about it a lot. Think about the colors beforehand. So I'm painting grapes right now. The yellow that I use is the most important part. And so I'll glaze with a glaze of yellow and leave the highlight and then come back in with Antwerp blue to get a green for me, and then come back over with a glaze of yellow, and then stop, except where the shadow is, because I'll put a little bit of shadow area, but where I've just made that yellow-green, leave it alone. Just leave it alone, because then once you put your... Then I'll come back in and around it put a dark background, something real dark, and that makes the grapes look translucent. But now if I'm painting a lemon... 13 to 15 glazes, because there what's important is I want all those colors to show through. I want them to all be part of that lemon, but it most certainly does not look translucent when I'm done. It has depth. It has a lot of depth where the grapes don't have so much depth because you want that translucent look. 
So again, it's just thinking about everything, just thoughts with where you want to take this. And I always have a scrap paper just to try it first and see if it's going to be where I want it to be. Do you change the type of qualities you're using in your paint? Like, would you use more granulated paints for something like um, a peach or a lemon, but then use more transparent, non-granulating or non-staining pigments for something that has translucency to it? Or does that not even a part of it? For me, I don't care what the properties of the paint are. I care what the color is. My other materials allow me to create any textures or, or, or my process. But the paint itself, my bottom line is the color. I know what color I want. And and I use, I glaze so much that if, if something is staining or something is granular, it's so soft when I put it on that it doesn't really matter. I think if an artist goes in and uses heavy, a little bit heavier of a color, then it would matter a lot more. So I panic, like if I happen to put a little bit too much paint on a, my brush, and I put down, ah, too much, and then I tissue it up because the glazes are important to me. So the properties then don't have as much impact. So then speaking of that process, could you walk us through how you'd paint something like a piece of fruit that what what are the steps and and what are your goals for those different glazes? Let's use a lemon. It's important for me to have that lemon have color depth. I don't want it just to be yellow with a little bit of color for shading. I, I don't want it to be that. I want it to have color, a lot of color. And still using a limited palette, which I do. So I paint on 300-pound rough paper because I need a paper that can handle all of those glazes without getting too out of shape. I want it to be able to take a beating, let's say. And then I like the texture of the rough because if I ever need dry brush, because I put a lot of Mars and damage on my fruit, I'm the only person that goes to the grocery store and looks for the bad fruit. But anyway, so my first step in a lemon would be to paint a glaze of yellow, leaving the highlight, and then I'll come back, and a lot of lemons will have some green areas in them. So I come in and put a little bit of Antwerp blue over that yellow, not over the whole thing, just in one area. And I start with a huge brush, a number five. That's huge for me. I never, I, I don't use big brushes. So after the Antwerp, I'll come back with another glaze of yellow. And then I might put a little bit of red violet somewhere and blue violet, and then come back with another glaze of yellow. And then I might put another glaze, a light glaze of Antwerp. The deeper I get into my glazing, the smaller my brushes go. Because by the time I am to my end glazes, I just keep on repeating colors. And because I allow with all those glazes, all the preceding layers to show through, and you still see all that color. And then my final glazes will be, I'll be down to a number one brush. Because with a brush that's small and a fruit as big as I do them, you cannot spread that color evenly with a small brush. So I do this small area and keep on moving, and it gives a very mottled effect. So then I end up on this rough paper getting the effect of that rind, you know, because a lemon isn't smooth. It's it's rough, and I want that rough look, but I don't just want to use the tooth of the paper, it adds something else. I don't know if I can even put it quite into words, but it gives that effect of really being a lemon skin. Or And the same thing with every other fruit. It gives the effect of it not being perfectly smooth and plastic. When you say glaze, you're not wetting it an area and then working wet into wet. Are you bringing a bead of paint down or are you 
working wet paint on dry paper and then it dries really quickly and you do another brush stroke next to it or you know it dries however naturally it will dry with that size of brush this control freak could never paint wet and wet (laughs) so i paint wet on dry paper but i personally don't have the need to have the colors flow real smoothly from one color to another. If you look at my paintings, I mean, you can see sometimes the brush strokes and you can see where everything isn't flowing real smooth. And I'm, I'm fine with that. I like that. It gives it a bit more texture. And again, the most important thing for me to mention here is that this really works for me. And it's taken me so long to get here. I can't always say that I started you know, that I would progressively go to a smaller brush. It's just painting all the time. I learned that from myself, that that works for me. Nobody told me to do that. So I'm back to the paint a lot. And you will learn a lot from yourself. It's trial and error. It's it's things you say, hmm, maybe this would work, you know. Did I answer your question? You did. You did perfectly. <laughs> and I think the thing about painting all the time. From what I hear you saying, it gives you a way to be curious and have that curiosity build, but it also means that the stakes are lower. Like you're you have more freedom to try things because this isn't the 2 hours on Saturday that you blocked out and is precious. And there's freedom like, in that. Well, yeah, and like I tell my students, wait a minute, is that is that the last piece of paper on this earth? You know, because I I don't think any artist should ever be afraid to try anything. Because if you do, you might be closing your world off. And yes, if you paint all the time, I know that I've gotten halfway through a painting. Oh, that I can tell you is hours and hours and hours. And I end up never finishing it because it wasn't going where I wanted it to. But I know I'm going to be painting again tomorrow. And I know what I've learned from that lost painting. And, you know, fear is the greatest inhibitor we have of giving all we've got to our paintings and our art. Your paintings have a real sense of light. What is happening in the painting that is giving the viewers that sense? I think it's backlighting because everything's backlit for the most part. I might do side lighting sometimes. I never, I, you, no, nobody should say never. That's not right. Rarely will you ever see a painting by me where it's lit from the front. Rarely. Everything is backlit. So that means in your foreground, you have so many shadows and so much dark which in itself creates a whole challenge because you can't use grays. All of a sudden, your darks need color and life and because that's the first thing your viewers are going to see. But because there is so much of it, because it is in the foreground, then wherever the light is hitting, it becomes so powerful. On the other hand, you're lighting it from the front. Everything is lit. Then you're your shadows will become more powerful because all of a sudden you'll see all this light's hitting the front of your subject. So those shadows that are cast are going to be darker than almost anything else in your painting. So I've just reversed it. And so that makes your light important. And when someone is learning to see light, what makes up realistic light? Because if you don't want realistic light, you can just do value contrast and then you're done. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. a shadow. But if you want someone to look at it and say, there's a glow to it or that it's realistic, what pieces need to be there? The direction of your light source is number one. I see so many times that you'll see a painting and you'll say, I'm not sure where that light's coming from. 
And I always, when I do it, I use my hand, I use my fingers, and I come down as if I'm the light hitting it and where everything should hit, where that light should hit with every element it should hit. And it's seeing it. People need to look. And when you're looking at your layout or you're looking at your photo, you're looking at everything, it's right. I guarantee you. I guarantee you the way an actual light hits something, it's right. I guarantee you because it's, it is. People don't look. They don't look. If you look at it and you put it there because that's where it is, it will be right. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Too many times people let their minds think, oh, well, the light should be here. If it says it isn't there, it isn't there. So it's really looking and seeing. Reference photos seem like their own art form in and of themselves. And yet they're so critical. How do you take decent photographs? Well, I use a photo lamp. I need a lamp like that because it creates longer shadows. I can backlight it. And basically what my reference photo is, is to put the elements in place. And that's it. And I don't use the color that's in my photos. I mean, obviously, if it's a lemon, the photo is going to be yellow. But I don't go by the yellow in the photo. I don't care what yellow it is. I know what I want it to be. And so my reference photo is for placement and for shadows because I paint realistically enough that the shadows have to be right. The light source has to be right. So even if I have a dark photo, as long as I know where the light values are and I know where the dark values are, that's what I need to know. I don't need to know the colors in that photo, don't need to know anything else. It's literally a reference. So it doesn't matter how well it's taken because if I wanted it to be perfect like my painting's gonna turn out, then I'll just go blow it up and, and glue it to something. But it's, it's just a placement of light, dark, and elements, and that's it. Also, listening to, hear, listening to you talk about this, it makes me realize is that learning to photograph could be a really good time for someone to practice design in a thing that is low stakes. You know, like a blueberry rolls away is very different than spending 100 hours on a painting and then realizing you have the blueberry in the wrong spot. Exactly. Exactly. And I think photos, what, 30 seconds, I can take 30 photos. I take a lot of photos and then I just sit and page through them and let the design jump out at me and capture me and study them and study your, all the principles I've talked about, because that's whenever something jumps out and captures me, it's because all the elements are good. I'll take some photos and think, really, (laughs) really? So that's a really good point. So for design, where does a person even start when they're learning and thinking about composition and design? The rule of thirds, I guess. And that's, you know, divide your paper up into three vertical, three horizontal lines. Find where one of those intersections are. And in your mind, make your focal point there. Because more than not, I'll see a beautifully painted painting, but everything's smack in the middle. And it's, to me... It's a nice study, but is it a good overall painting design-wise? No. I guess it's important to understand the elements of design. Like I said, I, I think about contrasts. I think about unity. I think about the placement of my focal point. I think about all of these things before I even start. But I would say for beginners, one of the best things you can do is not overdo. You can make a beautiful design with maybe five elements, maybe with three. Just start simple, and it's a lot easier because you not only use your elements as the part of design, you use, you use the shadows that those elements cast 
those are shapes too. So you have to consider all that. One thing I do tell students is whenever they're putting things into their still life, because I always teach with still life because that's what I know. But I'll say, what's the purpose of that element in your painting? And they say, well, I don't know. I said, get it out of there. <laughs> no reason. If it's not serving a purpose of some sort, why is it there? I mean, if you want to do a painting of pictures of loved ones and, and special little trinkets that mean something to you, fine, do it. But, but if you're looking to learn composition and good design, just think of everything as an element. Don't think of it as what it really is. Like, I don't think of a pear as a pear. I think of it as a big shape in my painting, and then I need a little shape to offset it. Good composition consists of a lot of contrasts, a whole lot of contrasts. Then speaking about shapes, like, why can't you just think of it as a pear? What does it bring you as an artist to start thinking about it as a big shape? All my still lifes are really close up. I mean, I measured a grape in one of my paintings and it was like nine inches long. That's ridiculous. But even so, grapes are these oval shapes in my paintings. They're not grapes, they're oval shapes. And if, if those grapes are with pears, I don't think of this as pear and grapes because then I've lost control of the size of the shapes and whatever. Then I'm thinking of them in, as what they are. Now, to me, a big pear in a painting that's, that has a busy quilt behind it and everything, it's not a pear, it's a resting space because you need those. You need those big resting shapes, and that's what it is. If I thought of it as a pear, I wouldn't think resting shape. I would just think of it as pear. So, and then cherries are, are circles, and you want to think circles versus geometrics. And, and so then I think if you start thinking of them as shapes and seeing them as big areas and small areas, it's easier to see the composition. It's easier to see composition in abstract art because you're looking at shapes. You're not saying, oh, that's – you're looking at shapes. And, and it's so apparent that round shapes are round. And when you look at something realistically, even though you see a cherry is round, you're not thinking round, you're thinking cherry. So you need to get beyond that. When you're painting in realism, you, get, you need to get beyond what you're painting and see it as a shape and how it fits all together in your composition and design. How do you place big shapes and then how do you place small shapes? Oh, my big shapes almost always will be in threes. Well, sometimes twos, but usually in threes, and I'll make a triangle. You know, your magic triangle is your basis of good design. And then usually the smaller shape, because they're to offset that, you'll have a lot more of them. And they will form patterns, and they will form lines to the, you know, if I have a, a bowl where my focal point is, and I might have, a let's say, a bowl of, of cherries, and I might have a pear behind it, a bigger pear, small cherries, and then I'll have a bigger pair and then a big pair. And then the cherries are forming a path position so that those cherries will be a path to the focal point. And those big shapes are just resting. So you can take a rest from this path, you know, stop and take a break. And then, no, but I mean, you need that. You need that. You can't have all of this action going on without somewhere to rest because if you do, People don't want to look at that. They, they don't know where to go. They don't know where to look. They need resting areas. They need a place to stop. Some of it, I think, is a little bit intuitive, but I also think it's because I've done them so 
many times. And again, it's practice. Design and composition, it may not necessarily hit somebody the first time they do it, but if you practice at it and you study what it is and you look at the composition that you put down or the setup that you have and you think of all of the properties of a good composition and try to live within that, you'll start seeing it. I mean, that's I can look at any painting. The first thing I look for, it, the, I don't look for it. First thing I see is composition. Very first thing with any painting. And it's because it's so important to me. It's now part of my lifestyle. <laughs> but it sounds like you have to build that intuitiveness, that composition and design can be learned, but it might not happen right away, that it takes thinking and trying and having things not work and then trying something else and that, but it becomes a part of how you think eventually. It does. Like I said, the triangles, I look for them and I see them and I look for size differences and then color. You know, when you talk about composition, it's not only shapes, it's color. You can't have all your color on one side and nothing to offset here. Again, I'm going to get right back to doing it every day because you start seeing then. And I don't think anybody is born with all of this. I think that, yes, there are some people that might be predisposed to, you know, what they call talent. You know, somebody says, oh, you're so talented. And I'm thinking, my hand doesn't move any different than anybody else's. And it's not that I'm predisposed to doing it. It's that I have such an interest that I want to do it all the time. And when you do it all the time, all of it becomes intuitive. So then... How does someone start? Where do they start getting those first things that they understand so they can move on to these more complex ways of seeing? Simplicity, first of all, because obviously the more that you're going to try to put into it, the more that you've got to wrap your head around and deal with. Secondly, there's the internet. You can study design and composition and elements. And you can, it's, it's out there. I think that you have to understand what rhythm means. I think you have to understand what warm colors and cool colors are. I mean, obviously, you know, big and small shapes, but maybe make a list of all good compositional elements, big, small, all of that. And then when you start trying to put something together, have a little checklist and maybe it'll look a little bit robotic, but at least it's somewhere to start. And then, you know, understand that triangles are a good basis of design. Make sure that everything that you do, color and shape-wise, you do that. And like I said, it could look a little stiff, but you need to practice it. It's not going to just work. Be conscious about it. It's going to feel awkward, but eventually it will be intuitive. Work hard and a lot and every day. You can find more about Chris Krupinski at her website, chriskrupinski.com, and that's C-H-R-I-S-K-R-U-P-I-N-S-K-I.com, and on Facebook and Instagram, and you can find links to all of that in the program notes. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. You are welcome. This has been interesting for me, too. All right. For whatever reason, I could not pronounce Chris's website. So it's Chris Krupinski. Dot com, chriskrupinski.com. And don't forget to check out the show notes and links at learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode two. Also linked from the website, we have some pieces from the interview that got cut from the main interview because of time, but we have links to them at the website, so take a listen there. And of course, if you liked what you heard today, share it with a friend. All right, see you in two weeks. 
Happy painting.